BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Hell. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So we do what we always try to do, turn down the noise, talk about things that matter, skip all the caterwauling about stuff that don't, and get to information that helps us do what we really need to be doing, which is discerning the times we live in so we can make our families, communities, country, and world a little bit better place. I want to go over to Germany. This is an important piece from the AP. I highly recommend you read it. I already shared it on social media a couple of days ago when it first came out. Um, I have a great affinity for Germany. I lived there two different times. I was stationed there when I was active duty. I love the people. I love the country. Um, but there's trouble in Germany for a couple of reasons. This AP piece is very detailed. It's very long. It's very well written. It has excellent information. You need to read the entire thing. It was written by David McHugh. Um, and we're going to link to it. It's on the Substack note, hertel.substack.com. All the extra notes and everything for the program are there. Also, if you're on any platform other than iTunes, which doesn't let us hyperlink stuff in the description for some reason, make sure you read this piece. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's very long. I am going to go over it in a broad way because it's very important to geopolitical things. It's very important to economic things. It's very important to understand how a big chunk of the world is working right now. Germany in a nutshell, and we're, we're going to blows over this a little bit so all you economists and historians don't send me hate mail. We're going to Reader's Digest for the purposes of this conversation. Germany had two things that happened simultaneously that changed its economy forever and then had another thing that happened that changed its economy further. When the Berlin Wall came down and they did reunification, that happened at the same time that America started doing really severe drawdown. They had to absorb East Germany, rebuild East Germany, get East Germany up to speed where West Germany was, not only culturally as a country, but also economically. And they went through that process. Through that process, and by the time the EU comes around, Germany has become the economic engine of Europe. And when they joined the EU, Germany 
is the economic engine that lets the EU do what the EU does. All those bureaucrats in Brussels can goof off and do all their silliness because Germany fuels that beast by far and away compared to all the other countries in the EU. Germany's the engine that makes that thing go economically. Now, publicly for the last 20, 30 years, Germany has also been trying to do a lot of things environmentally and green energy-wise. They've been trying, and especially telling the West, that they were going to transition from an industrial-based economy to green-based economy. Now, they've had successes. The Roar Valley, which used to be you know, kind of synonymous with if you took our Rust Belt and the Leahy Valley and Appalachian, put them all together. That's what the Roar Valley was to Germany. They deindustrialized it for good reason. A lot of it was outdated coal mines and steel mills and things like that. But they did something really smart. They put a lot of their tech stuff. They put a lot of university stuff. They did a program based on rebuilding that from an industrial society to more of a tech and green society. In fact, it's something that I've talked about in stuff I work on in Appalachia, that Appalachia and the Rust Belt and places like that should look to the Roar Valley. And you can look at success in America of places like Pittsburgh, like the Leha Valley, where, you know, former industrial centers that are going more towards technology and they're going more towards university systems and things like that. Um, but anyway, Germany was putting a fresh face on all that. They're going to be a green energy. Look, when I lived there the second time, uh, 09, 010, that time frame. We took the family. We would drive up on top of the hill above our village to where all the windmills were. The kids wanted to go see the windmills. And we just drive up there. It was relaxing. You drive up to the top of the hill and there's all these windmills. It's beautiful. It's actually been the background on my laptop for years and years and years. Love it. It's a great picture. It's good memories with my children. When they, they were very little, they just like to look at the windmills. But for two, three decades now, Germany has built this public persona and this outward appearance and they have sold to the West Western countries, European countries, America, the wider world, that they were going green energy. Underneath that, though, the reality was they were able to do that because they were getting really cheap energy from the East, from Russia. Gas and fuel and oil, but especially natural gas. One of the issues they're having now is with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and sanctions. Remember, Germany was very slow to want to get involved and come out against Russia because Germany sees this as a business arrangement. Germany needs that business arrangement. You need natural gas and fossil fuels to get the kind of industrial stuff to do things like glass and metal and things like that. They're having trouble getting enough energy out of green energy to get those temperatures up like that. You can't do it as reliably as you can with natural gas. Germany was getting natural gas for decades for cheap from Russia. Now they're not. And it's trickling through their entire economy and causing all kinds of problems. German, Germany's government isn't just struggling over that, and their economy is not just struggling over that, but it's an underlying tension that you need to understand. The government's financial coffers, I'm reading from this AP piece right now, grew as other independent European countries drowned in debt. And books were written about what other countries could do to learn from Germany. Again, this is David McHugh and AP. No longer. Now Germany is the world's worst performing major developing economy with both the IMF, the Inter International Monetary Fund, and the European Union expecting it to shrink this year. It follows the Russian invasion of Ukraine, an unprecedented shock to Germany's energy-intensive industry. Energy-intensive industry. That metalworking, steelworking, metalworking, glassworking, things that need that energy to make. Long the manufacturing powerhouse of Europe, talking about Germany, the sudden underperformance by Europe's largest economy has set off a wave of criticism, 
hand-wringing, and debate about the way forward. Germany re-risks deindustrialization, that's in quotes, as high energy costs and government inaction on other chronic problems threaten to send new factories and high-paying jobs elsewhere. Now, w- one thing they did that was really dumb was they also wanted to close all their nuclear plants at right about the time all this started hitting earlier this year was when they scheduled all their nuclear plants to close right as all this Russian and gas problem happened. It, it got so bad they actually had to go begging to keep some coal fire plants open. That's how bad it was. If everybody back in the 70s, 80s had ignored the hippies and just let everybody let n- nuclear energy develop the way it should have, we wouldn't be having hardly any of these problems right now. But that's another tirade for another day. What has happened in Germany is they were promised a bright green future with renewables. I'm not against renewables. I look forward to a green future with renewables. We're just not there yet. But they have a major industrial economy that requires fossil fuels. But they were able to play the game of saying they were going to renewables while using very questionable from Russia cheap gas from a country that they knew there was going to be geopolitical problems with. You knew Putin was a bloodthirsty dictator that was going to do something stupid at some point, And you knew at some point Russia was going to use that to leverage Germany and the rest of the Western Europe countries to try to do what they wanted to do. And now we're here. This is a problem of Germany's old making. This is a problem a lot of other countries in the West who have been able to get by on cheap energy and want to go to the bright green future, but can't now because the gap's still too wide, both technology-wise, practical-wise, and economically. This is the lesson you need to learn here. You were sold a bill of goods, Germany. You were promised a unicorn, but you got a possum and a party hat instead because underneath all that, it was still fossil fuels that was fueling it. When the fossil fuels went away because of Russia's war and invasion of Ukraine, now the whole thing's collapsing. Pay very careful attention to what you're promised and what can actually be delivered. I hope we have a green future. I'm all for doing environmental things. But don't promise me unicorns because they're never going to come and they're never going to deliver. And when you're talking about economies and the industrial engine of an entire continent, that means a lot of pain for a lot of really real people for those broken promises. More hurt tell right after this. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, let's get back to talking about some education again, because once again, this stuff's crossed streams. We've all learned a lot from it. Not enough people learn from what we're supposed to learn the last few years from it. Armand Sidhu, another Young Voices contributor, has a lot of experience in this stuff, both public school teaching, also working in charter schools, now working in a micro school. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, how are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. I'm great. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I'm excited to uh, talk about this exciting movement in schools. Yeah, well, let's talk about it out in Arizona where you're at. You're also the founder and director of IQ Learning. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
Here's the thing. School choice is a great buzzword. School choice is a good concept. Most people, if you just ask them about school choice, it polls really, really highly. There's also a danger in that because it has become a buzzword. It has been, the devil is really in the details when it comes. Look, you've been in in classroom education. You understand what you're told to teach and actually getting it to the students. Two different things, right? Even Absolutely. more so with stuff with like school choice, where learning as school choice expands as it becomes more popular. Devil's really in the detail and how you actually apply it. I think we need to stop and take a moment and start there before we get into the different kinds of things because I fear too many of our friends are skipping over that part. And that's the important part, right? Absolutely. So school choice really started at the beginning of how can you not be constrained just to your zip code in terms of the options available to you? So school choice started and enrollment practices, being able to choose different schools within a district, being able to leave the public school district that you're zoned with. Uh, and then we've seen this next evolution with the ESAs and the voucher programs. So we've never had a time where funding has followed students that have left the public school system or have started to become homeschooled. So in the school choice mo movement, we really moved past giving kids options and giving them now the funding to pursue those options so that a wider group of families are able to participate in these ESA and school voucher programs nationwide. Yeah, so my own bias is on the table. My kids have done both public and private. My two youngest have been pretty much public school all the way through, including online now. We'll talk about that in a second, including being overseas. We lived overseas, so my daughter went to a German school overseas. Um, my parents were public school teachers. My dad was also the principal of a private school as part of his re you know, his retirement job was to have one job instead of two, so he became a principal. And that's the kind of guy he is. I've been around education all my life. Something really changed in covid not just in adults, not just in the school system. I saw it in my own children. I've seen it in other children. I've seen it. My oldest daughter was a senior in college when that happened. COVID taught the lesson to the kids, not just talking about the politics of it. The kids figured out really fast that they are cogs in a wheel. They figured out that funding drives it more than just their learning. Have we really got a grip over what that generational shift as those kids get older now how that's changed their view, not just the parents and the politics and the buzzwords and the ideology, their view of school forever changed because of COVID. And that's a piece of this we need to talk about too, before we get into the nitty gritty, isn't it? Absolutely. So this is something that goes beyond even K-12 education. And to your point, uh, we've seen kind of a, a rethinking of a college education as well, the questioning and the value of that. You see a lot of trends with AI and the concerns over professional white collar service jobs and whether or not the college degree is really the uh, ticket for social mobility for students. Uh, so COVID really, like you said, became this great experiment where parents really firsthand saw the struggles that their students were going through in their public school education. Uh, so we saw a number of parents take the initiative on their own uh, for areas that were not open or were not as conducive to reopening during COVID. A lot of parents started these pandemic pods and pandemic pods began to resemble the one room schoolhouse, kind of the classic model that we've had for delivering instruction in the United States, uh, dating back for the last you know, two centuries. And the one room schoolhouse really showed us that creating the quality instructional experience and environment for your student uh, requires more than just bricks and mortar, requires more than just, you know, how many kids can you get Chromebooks or devices to, uh, this became a moment where we really need to say, this is no longer working. The school that you and I attended is not something that we can pass on to the next generation. 
So students are now realizing that, of course, uh, parents got a good view of that, and we've seen policies start to follow and pursue alternatives like ESAs and school vouchers. Yeah, now ESAs and school vouchers are not the same thing. Let's get the nomenclature straight here because, look, funding is a nice, fancy, socially acceptable word for we're going to fight over money, right? Let's just be frank here. Education is a big business. Just because it's a government-ran business doesn't mean it's not a big business. There's vendors. We just saw the court case in Texas over the school books, multi-million dollar industry just doing school textbooks. This is big business that has wide-ranging implications. I know this, the elementary school my kids went to, the high school's right beside it, and there's a shopping center across the street. Economic implications when the schools weren't open. This is a business. That means funding. So when you start talking funding and moving funding and who gets funding, we need to understand the nomenclatures on them. Break those down, the difference between ESAs, vouchers, and how that's different than just, hey, I pay my taxes, my kids get to go to the school because they paid our taxes. Because That's technically true, but not the full story. Absolutely. So uh, parents have always had that uh, ability to withdraw their students from a public or a charter school and then enroll in a private or homeschool. But the funding has never followed the child before. So this is the first time where we have seen that when you withdraw your student, and I like to consider ESAs very close to health savings accounts. So a lot of folks with health savings accounts know that that income is designed to be spent on certain expenditures. ESAs, education savings accounts, are the same. Education savings accounts give you quarterly funding when you withdraw your student from a public or charter school. In the case of Arizona, you get about 90% of what your student would have got if they had enrolled in a public or charter. So that 90% of funding is given to the family. They're given guidelines on how they can use it. The most popular way that we've seen it used in Arizona, which is which was the first state last year to expand universal access, not just for students with disabilities or um, students who met certain criteria, but for all students. And we've seen this used most often for private school tuition, but there's also a growing uh, segment from that pandemic time that has turned to homeschooling as a permanent option, where I've turned to alternatives like micro schools, hybrid models, where students aren't sitting in a seat for eight hours, Monday through Friday, but maybe it's a hybrid program, they're coming in two days a week. The ESA programs, like you said, with economic implications, one of the beauties of this is your local school district when they're purchasing bulk textbooks, they're usually going with large vendors, you know, the Pearsons, uh, the large publishing companies that, that can uh, pursue those contracts with school districts. But the beauty of ESAs is your vendors are going to be by and far local. So local tutors. Um, in Arizona, we have martial arts studios that offer adaptive physical education classes for all students. So the economic implications for ESAs is really centering that education funding back into the local community. So, you know, paying the local people for tutoring, paying for instructional material supplies, that funding is now going to the decision making of the parents rather than a school board or a select few administrators. Yeah, Amon Cedar joining us. 
One of the things about the school voucher things that's a concern, and again, I'm all for school choice. I'm an all of the above person when it comes to education. I think the more options you give people, including better public education, because you're still going to have 90% of the kids going to public education no matter what. We can't just abandon public education. I'm an all of the above. One of the issues I have with some of the voucher programs, and again, this stuff matters how you actually write the legislation. One of the problems with the voucher programs is, well, they become a kind of de facto subsidy. So now tuition rates are going to go to whatever the vouchers are, right? And now you've got an artificial thing and you start creating a new problem from trying to solve another problem, right? ESAs, you don't so much have that problem. There's a little bit of that, but it's very different. There's more flexibility. And as you laid out in your piece, this may be a little bit better way of doing it because it kind of cuts out that tendencies of the tuitions to just float around to the ESAs because they're not they're not slave to just the tuition costs. Absolutely, and, and vouchers kind of have a, a bad uh, image from time to time. And we've seen with the opposition in Arizona attacking vouchers, a lot of it has been concentrating on this, construing it as a subsidy for affluent students for private schools. Uh, but ESAs are, the, the funding is distributed quarterly or dispersed quarterly. And that gives the parent chances to not just spend all of that money in a single place and you know hand over the voucher to the private school, but being able to slowly kind of evaluate what are the things that I need to use. I'm gonna test a curriculum, see if that works. If not, make those changes without having to put all of the funding, put all your eggs in one basket. Uh, so the ESAs definitely provide a little bit more flexibility. And the beauty of this and where I think the scale really needs to happen is in talking about the alternatives to just a private school tuition, because some of the fastest growing student groups in this country are homeschooling. Uh, in the past, we have really seen homeschooling take more of a religious bend or only be um, applicable to a select few communities. But some of the fastest growing demographics of homeschooling communities in America are um, African-American families, Hispanic, Latino, Asian families. So we're seeing that really expand. And a big part of that is the fact that every student, regardless of what you thought of online education during COVID, you still had a chance to try that out. And I think we've learned now that time and space in schools does not need to be this well-defined eight hours in a single place, but can be something where, um, and ESAs can be used for things like community college tuition and other areas as well, but giving the families and the students the flexibility to direct their education funding to their particular needs instead of a, a one size fits all for the entire community. Yeah, Armand Sidhu, it's great that you brought that up because we learned from COVID, there is a gap when you try to do online learning. It is a fair criticism that a lot of this starts trending towards people, not just income-wise and class-wise, but means-wise. Like, do you have a parent around to help with this during the day? Things like this. We learned from COVID, there's a gap of kids that just don't have support. They're from, you know, poor circumstances. They don't have parental support at home. There's always going to be those kids. How do we have a school choice conversation and a public school conversation too, because they're gonna be linked here, that those gaps don't get wider, that those people without means, maybe they don't have broadband access, maybe they just don't have the family structure or the access or the support or the means. How do we keep them from that gap getting worse as some of the other ends of the spectrum get more and more access? So one of the, the groups that we, talk about less often, but will also benefit from these voucher programs is teachers themselves. Uh, so in the current public education system, uh, you, compensation favors uh, individuals who are furthest away from the classroom. So administrators, 
uh, superintendents, those types of positions. But in terms of, of making sure that these programs are sustainable and aren't uh, worsening the achievement gap, that really comes in the power of teachers themselves. Behind every successful program at a school is the personnel. It's not just infrastructure, uh, but the quality of those teachers. So in terms of getting teachers to become vendors, to uh, take that entrepreneurship uh, and take that next step, a lot of that is gonna be contingent on reaching those families and being able to guide families on how to best use this. A lot of families maybe don't know how to choose a curriculum. Maybe they don't know what their students' skills are, but that really comes in from outreach. It comes from um, allowing entrepreneurs in this country to form solutions because they're not getting that in the public schools now. So a lot of that, like we said, in, in Arizona, there's been a big marketing push uh, with bilingual and trying to get more families to adopt this and just getting the awareness out there. Because like you said, school choice is something that's very easy on face uh, to agree with. But when we talk about vouchers and the implications of that, we still need to make sure that we're conducting outreach and explaining to families that this isn't just a matter of uh, removing funding from a public school, but this is a chance for you to have your voice, choice, and agency without having to run for the school board or become the PTA president to uh, enact those reforms that your child needs. Yeah, Omar, I'm sorry for joining us. You just mentioned it. Let's stay on it. You listed there's about seven states that have this universal or some type of universal eligibility programs. One of them is West Virginia. That you you cannot legislate a buzzword. You have to write it in black and white. West Virginia just had this problem where now all of a sudden you have people living on in border areas, especially like the Metro DC area up in the Panhandle. All of a sudden they're using the in-state money to get the out-of-state schools loophole. They're going to have to go back and clean that kind of stuff up. As somebody that's not only an in-classroom teacher, but you're also, you know, not to make it a dirty word, but a vendor, you're offering an educational service now. What's some of the things legislatures and people advocating for the legislative, give them a couple things that show that it's a good written piece of legislation for something like an ESA that's actually going to help the kids and help the parents and also help the schools, frankly. What's a couple of the things they need to look for in the legislation that it's a good product and it's not going to have loopholes and it's not just some buzzword that got shoved through in an election year? Absolutely. So I think the first part is fiscal accountability for taxpayers. And if we look at the origins of the school voucher movement, a lot of that came from the economist Milton Friedman. And Friedman himself advocated for a level of um, supervision and making sure that these the vendors were um, using the funds appropriately. So not just a, a matter of guidelines, but also ensuring and keeping track of which vendors are receiving the most funds, uh, doing any sort of accountability checks. I think that those conversations are gonna come in soon. Uh, there are a number of other states that have also uh, implemented income caps. Arizona isn't at that place right now. Arizona's kind of a, the wild west of, of school choice right now. But as a vendor, uh, first and foremost, if we're thinking longevity of these programs, it is crucial. Uh, that these programs are sustainable fiscally and that there is a level of accountability over how these funds are used and um, how they're audited and tracked. So that certainly needs to be part of any legislation. That's not just, you know, good sense, but it's also just being pragmatic and responsible of making sure that these programs can, can be sustained. 
Uh, the other part of that too is getting beyond just the private school tuitions, but also reaching out to those other elements of, of ESA. So homeschooling populations are a good example I've mentioned a few times. Some states are not allowing these ESA programs to be used for that. So we need to be very careful about making sure that these programs are expansive and that we enable people from different communities to participate within them. So even if it's not a, a private school, but uh, any other sort of setting, that would be the best best option for making sure that this legislation is strong and sustainable. Yeah, let's talk physical accountability as a way to kind of put a bow on this, though, because, you know, again, public education is still going to be the primary means of education for the vast majority of people. You've been an in-classroom teacher. I've noticed a troubling trend a lot of other people do, and COVID really put a stamp on it. I think the in-classroom public school teachers are getting a really bad situation and a bad rap here because the supervisor level and the superintendent level and the non-classroom teaching level has exploded. They're not getting the same support, but they tend to get the blame from those people. And when the money starts getting tight, it comes from the in-classroom teachers and the students. And then they want to play the classroom teachers against the parents. Look, education's got three legs on that stool, right? Parent, student, teacher. Those three got to have a relationship for this thing to work properly. I think the administrative level of education is breaking that relationship and it's trying to play the in-classroom teachers as a shield for themselves. Hey, we're all educators. Well, you're not an in-classroom teacher. That's a different thing. But also putting the blame for the parents and it's making the parents and the teachers relationship way harder. If funding gets tighter and schools weren't built to shrink, although Arizona, they're growing, but other parts of you know, the school system may to shrink. How do we protect the in-classroom teachers in the public education system? Because any reform in public education, if it's not in-classroom with the teachers and the students, it ain't mattering because you ain't teaching anything. How do we protect the in-classroom teachers as we talk about things like school reform? And do we need to be more specific with our language in that particular case? Because I think people are falling into a trap of lumping all public education together. I think the in-classroom teachers deserve a little bit more credit and they deserve a little more um let me rephrase that. The in-classroom teachers deserve a little bit more protection from the public that they really are trying to serve. Absolutely. I mean, getting into that position in the first place takes a level of, of servant leadership. Um, so, of course, teachers are on the, the back end of that, and it's unfortunate. I think one of the driving forces towards vouchers away from public schools is that dysfunction that we see in school boards across the country. So school boards used to be these overlooked nonpartisan seats. Uh, that's not the case, especially in this campaign trail where we've seen K-12 education become a, a central narrative. Um, so I, I think that for public school teachers, these ESA programs will do a good job of right-sizing school districts. So now that we're introducing competition uh, for enrollment and the two ways that schools, public schools tend to be funded in this country are through uh, property taxes and through their headcount, their enrollment. Uh, in Arizona, we see a number of school districts that are, are teetering towards that closure and consolidation. And really, this is more so demonstrating things that are happening that are outside the control of your school board or superintendent. So things like birth rates, things like uh, right-sizing the school based off the population it was based to serve. So if your local school district was built to accommodate 800 elementary students and enrollments at 300, that really becomes a conversation where local taxpayers, superintendents, teachers have to come together and say, we're entering a new era where we need to look at what are the most essential positions. More often than not, that's gonna be in classroom positions 
And it's gonna take a level of advocacy from uh, school boards, from superintendents, and from local taxpayers themselves to make sure they're keeping school districts accountable and ensuring that teachers are getting the priority for funding, that grants are going towards teaching and learning uh, in order to make sure that they can compete and remain fiscally viable in an area where vouchers exist. Give folks one or two things to be watching in the headlines. We're getting a campaign season off your elections right now. A lot of places are having school board elections and city councils and county commissions. There's a lot of those this year. And then, of course, the national election next year. As they're looking at the headlines for education, give people one or two things that should pique their interest when they see it on a headline or see it on a link of, oh, I need to look into that beyond just the buzzword of school choice of hey, this is an education program. This person knows what they're talking about or they're just giving it lip service. Give them a couple things to kind of pick out of the news cycle for us. Sure, so I think the two biggest forces for ESAs, one part of that's gonna be enrollment. So that's a nationwide story where we're seeing uh, population growth start to slow. We're seeing delayed childbirths, families with school-aged children. It's becoming a lot harder for schools to compete with. So I think public school enrollment is gonna be one element to look at because a big part of ESAs is the fact that uh, when a student does get an ESA, they don't get any federal or local support in addition to that. Uh, so it really does create a cost saving per pupil among school districts. So I think public school enrollment is one big part of that. And the other part of that is going to be looking at the states that have thus far adopted a universal ESA program and really watching for uh, what are we doing in the courts? Um, what is kind of the narrative that's being pushed on both sides? What are some areas that need to be cleaned up, like you said? Uh, if there are these loopholes where students are being able to take uh, you know, taxpayer funds to another state or being misused, those are those are elements of the ESA programs that are really going to drive its adoption nationwide. Uh, public school enrollment, as well as the battle over ESAs at the partisan level. Yeah, he's Armand Sudu. He is the founder and director of iCube Learning, Inc. He's been a teacher. He's been a principal. Now he's advocating and great Young Voices contributor. My friend, let folks know what you got going on. Explain iCube a little bit to them, where they can find you, how they can follow you until we get you back on Hertel again. Absolutely. So iCube Learning is a nonprofit micro school in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, so we work with homeschoolers across Arizona that are using these vouchers. Our students do not come into a uh, brick and mortar building five days a week. They all have their individual curriculums that they're able to use at home, and then they're able to come and leverage with us if they need additional assistance when it comes to tutoring, curriculum selection, or even just guidance on how to best allocate their ESA funding. Looking forward to that. I said we'll get into it some other time. I think this is a good time to bring back vocational learning because you could really do some hybrid stuff where you have on the job hands-on training stuff with half your day like it used to be. Technology is just formed for that. That'd be good for a lot of kids. We'll talk about that some other time. Sir, appreciate your time. Look forward to having you back. We're going to link to all this stuff that we've talked about. Make sure you check those out. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yes, sir. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. 
Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. So glad you're with us. Uh, let's start with something that I've actively not been talking about on this program for some matter of weeks, actually, and that is the GOP presidential primary. Hadn't been talking about it. Why? Um, I took to social media. I've actually been calling this the primary in name only. Uh, the PINO, because everybody likes an acronym, right? PINO, primary in name only. Why do I say that? Well, it's because that's what we're having. This isn't really a primary. Um, we had one debate. We're getting ready to have another debate. Donald Trump didn't participate in the first one. He's not going to participate in this one, he says. He says he's going to go address uh, the striking UAW auto worker union. We'll see how that plays out. But he's not even participating in this. New polling. Uh, this is from Emerson College. This ain't just crack polling. This is pretty decent, well-respected polling. Um, currently, Donald Trump is at 59% in the GOP primary, uh, followed by Ron DeSantis at 12%, um, Vivek uh, Ramsey, uh, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and then the also-rans, they're all 7% and under. They say, well, that's just one poll. Well, here's the problem. In the Emerson polling, in June of 22, so that's you know, over a year ago now, June of 22, Donald Trump was polling at 55% against these same group of people for all practical purposes. In November of 22, he was polling at 55%. In January of 23, this year, 55%. February of 23, 55%. Stop me when you sense the trend line here. Uh, April of 23, bumped up to 62%. June of 23, 59%. August 19th of 23, went down to 56%. August 28th of 23, you might notice he was in the news a lot right around there, went down to 50%. But since then, in roughly about a month since then, September of 23, in this latest polling, he's back up to 59%. That's a heck of a trend line that ain't moving much. 55% to 50%, 59%. That's just statistical. In polling, in political consulting, if you can get your candidate in a primary over 50%, you're on cruise control to winning because you're going to win. And Donald Trump's bumping closer to 60% than he is 50%. Plus, remember, Vivek rhymes with fake is in this race, and everybody that's polling for him is going to vote for Trump as well. So go ahead and put whatever Vivek's numbers on top of the Trump numbers, and that's what you get. Well, that's just one poll. Okay, fair enough. 
let's go over to the Quinnipiac poll. Virtually identical numbers. They have it just slightly higher. They have Trump not at 59, but at 62. DeSantis is the next closest competitor to him at 12%. And then it goes down from there. Um, you can go through this list. Haley, 5%. Pence at 5%. On and on and on and down and down and down you go. Scott, all the rest of them, not good. Well, that's still only two polls. Well, actually, if you look at the RCP average, this is what it's been pretty much through the entire primary. Donald Trump isn't winning this primary. He's won it unless something really screwy happens, and it's not close. What are they going to do? They've indicted him four times. There may be another one coming out of Arizona. We'll see how that plays out. Like, what's going to happen that's going to make the hardest of the hardcore Donald Trump supporters, and that's all that's left at this point, by the way, that's going to make them say, no more, we're done. Now, he did step in it a little bit with these abortion comments. We're going to cover those in a future program once the dust settles on that issue. But really, the Trump people, when have they cared about anything that makes them move off Donald Trump? We'll see if that hurts him any. I'm skeptical. Why do I keep calling it the primary and name only? Donald Trump's not even playing in that sandbox. For whatever you want to say about Joe Biden not looking good and mumbling his words and looking old like he is because he is too old to be president. Sorry, he is. Donald Trump ain't much younger. Donald Trump doesn't have very many more points that will wipe out anything that Biden does wrong. And Donald Trump, by the way, if you notice, He's doing a lot less campaigning and events than Joe Biden is. He doesn't have to because he's going to sail through this primary. That ain't going to work in a general election where people are going to run, not walk to the polls to vote against him. So primary and name only because this poo-poo platter of also rans in the GOP field, they're not making a dent in Donald Trump's numbers so far. And it's almost October, folks. Time running out. More hurt tell right after this. Hi, welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, new face to the program. Excited to talk to her. We'll talk a little bit about trigger warnings and such. And to do it, we're going to go all the way, not even over yonder. We're going to go down under. Francis Ann is a student at University of Western Australia, PhD candidate. Excited to talk to her. How are you, ma'am? Uh, I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thrilled to have you. You wrote a piece over at Town Hall about trigger warnings. Here, here's where we got to start with this one, though, because... Here we go again. We talk about this a lot on our program. You have a word, you have a terminology, you have some nomenclature that has a valid use, that has a traditional meaning, but we've completely lost what the meaning is with all the nonsense that's surrounded it. Is that a fair way to kind of get into trigger warnings? Um, I guess so. I can imagine um, when you talk about the the fact that they started from, I guess, a reasonable spot, then my guess about that is that the the pre-trigger warning, the the mother of trigger warnings, I suppose, would be, I don't know, age-related res- restrictions and things that are quite relevant because, of course, you don't want, I don't know, um, audiences of a 
particular age of a younger age bracket to be watching things that are well outside of their um, appropriate material. So I'm guessing that's where the the precursor to the sorts of trigger warnings that are focused on identity groups we see today are. So I think that would be a fair a fair characterization of the trigger warnings issue. Yeah, you study things like how marketing works and consumerism and those sorts of things and how people think through them. You listed a couple of things that I found interesting. You talk about things like smoking cessation warnings, health warnings, non-compliance warnings, things like that. Those all have good, solid public health reasoning and science behind them. And yet when you start putting psych mass psychology into it or consumer psychology into it, it almost turns into its own thing again, doesn't it? Yeah. So I guess uh, some background to the article that is useful is that the research that I put in about the reactance principle and how that plays out in smoking and uh, health warnings on bad foods and all those things is all of that research. I wasn't actually doing it with um, the focus of trigger warnings in mind. It was actually part of my uh, PhD research on, to cut a long story short, I was studying the effects of labels on perceptions of workplace misbehavior. So as I was doing this research, then the trigger warnings idea came through my mind. And I thought as because, you know, it was so it was almost so cemented in the research for so long that labels don't affect human behavior the way that we want them to. So then I thought by this point, oh, I'm guessing all of the all of the stuff on trigger warnings has probably died down because of all of you know the research that has come out. And then it was only you know, as as in the the recount at the beginning of uh, when I was in uh, London for an internship, and I went to the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at Cambridge University, and I saw there were still the trigger warnings, and I thought, what? Why are we still here? So uh, that was how um, all that research came into the article. Francis Hand joining us. You talk about these words, and then you talk about this line. You say, like so many other paternalistic efforts to protect people, trigger warnings do more harm than good. They're a nasty habit, and we should give them up. Where's the line on paternalistic? Because we know government does have some role in such things. We also know that there's personal responsibility involved here. That's a big gray area that humanity has always debated. But give us some kind of a guardrail there somewhere. There's got to be some kind of happy medium there before it gets to paternalistic and then just letting people do whatever they want, right? That's kind of the, the core issue here. I think on that, then I'd say even more than paternalistic, it's my issue with it is that because if it was, I mean, at least this is just my view, I guess, is that if it was really that trigger warnings, they're just, they're sort of, what can I say? useless, but some people find them kind of fluffy and nice, then, you know, I might find them obnoxious or virtues, a little bit of virtue signaling here and there, but I wouldn't necessarily find it annoying or uh, counterproductive or dangerous. But my main issue with the paternalistic efforts to use that um, phrase in the essay is that it just doesn't work. And it's harmful because of the way labels actually affect our behavior. So that's more my take on it. 
Yeah, Francis Hand joining us. The other problem with it, and you bring it up in your piece, is these are not evenly applied standards. They tend to target certain things. Something goes viral, and then we want to put a, you know, we've seen, you know, against tobacco, against alcohol, against certain things. They seem to not be evenly applied. And anytime you have a standard not evenly applied, you're going to have some, you know, inequality there. And then you end up with certain groups getting targeted and all that. That's part of this conversation as well. Yes, that's right. I feel that. Um, I guess you're referencing the second half of that article, which uh, which uh, talks about and uh, criticizes the moral appeal to trigger warnings. Because I think a common, what can I say, a common point for people who support trigger warnings is, oh, even if they're not as effective as we might like them to be, they're nice and they show that we're polite and considerate. But my point with undermining that argument was that no trigger warnings they are not they are not necessarily that nice or inclusive because it's very clear that they're trying to what can i say they're trying to express that some group suffering is more worth noting than other group suffering yeah, and this goes back to kind of where you started in your background of the psychology of it. You know, how does the human mind work when it's told? No? I've, I've got a little bit of a rebellious streak. I had that thing. Mom told me to do something. I'd immediately go no and go. Like, that's just part of human nature. It's kind of ground into you. When you're trying to talk about an entire society in this case, like what you're studying and when you're talking about these trigger warnings, there just is never going to be a one-size-fits-all for this sort of thing, is there? There's just too many variables and too many contingencies. Yes, I agree with that in that I think actually this makes me think of what um, uh, Mark Liller, a political scientist who I admire quite a bit, he mentioned in a book called The Once and Future Liberal. Um, he was in that book uh, published in I think it was 2017. He was trying to explain why a lot of people had voted Trump in and he talked about how the white working class were often demeaned and held and viewed with contempt against the a lot of the minority-based identity politics. And it's sort of it's a similar thing with trigger warnings where it's it's like you it's like why are you calling out some group suffering and not other groups suffering? Except of course if you try and call out all group suffering then there has to be a trigger warning on everything. And then that's just too messy. Yeah, it would be too messy. Uh, Francis Ann joining us. Uh, you ended your piece talking about how what happens with some of this is the psychology of it. People start thinking that there's some kind of utopian free zone where we're not going to have to have any trigger warnings. If we just trigger warning the right thing, the bad thing goes away. We know that doesn't happen, but you've done research on this. Just for the audience, though, when they see these things going up or they see a discussion about it, or there's a piece of legislation about trigger warnings or a company is discussing it, give them one or two practical things of how they should approach this beyond just that buzzword trigger warning to kind of absorb the information of what they're looking at. I think my advice in terms of uh, if I had a say in policy and things like that would simply be to check the empirical evidence that has come out before. So just for example, um, in the article, then I mentioned the usage, the proposal to use uh, fashion warning labels. So uh, that's the idea that 
um, lots of people, especially young women, feel insecure or have body image issues when they see um, uh, edited edited images of glamorous and usually very thin models. And there was a proposal to put a warning label saying, you know, this image has been um, manipulated in Photoshop or something. But a 2018 study by um, Munyi, Kwan and colleagues, colleagues indicated that those labels not only did nothing, but they actually made the body image issues worse because what the young, the, well, I think in this, in their study was the young women were doing was the statement that trigger warning about the manipulated photos was first shortcutting to their idea of um, very thin model equals glamour before they could even process the the process that statement more intelligently, which was whether they should compare themselves to the model or not. And that was a cognitive mechanism in 1991 that a different social psychologist, Daniel Gilbert, had already observed. And yet, despite that evidence, then quite frustratingly, then there was a bill, a 2020 bill um, to the House of Commons that sought to bring back those exact advisory labels onto edited images. So I think it's quite, uh, yeah, I think it's quite frustrating to see that the evidence before just gets completely ignored. Francis Ann joining us. Love talking through this piece. It's up in town hall. We've linked to the entire piece. Everybody can read it for yourself. There's also some links in there you want to make sure you go through. This problem is going to keep coming up because whether it's trigger warnings or something else, studying social psychology like this is going to have a lot of applications. So we look forward to talking to you more about it in the future. Until we get you back on the program, though, let folks know where they can find you, follow you, and keep up with you until we get you back on her tell again. So I'm Francis Ann on LinkedIn. And I'm at Francis and three on Twitter. Yep. And we'll link to both of those for everybody in the show notes and on the Substack. Francis and appreciate your time, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? 
These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Let's end on a good note. You know how much I love food. I love to talk about food. Twitter Supper Club, hashtag Twitter Supper Club. Never going to be X Supper Club. Twitter Supper Club is just one of my... As fun as it may be to gawk at the excess of gold-plated steaks and roll our eyes at the fancy folks of the fine dining scene, the fact is that class segregation is all too evident when it comes to where we choose to eat every day. And there are surprisingly few places where wealthy and non-wealthy people converge. A new study highlights just how separated we are, but it reveals there are a few key places most American consumers seem to agree on. Again, this is from Takeout. Y'all sitting down? Everybody ready? Brace yourselves. Emotionally prepare yourselves here. Where are the three places that Americans of all stripes can meet at? Go ahead and suck it, you food elitists. Olive Garden, Chili's, and Applebee's. Let me hit you with that again. Olive Garden, Chili's, and Applebee's. The research was conducted by Maxim Maxinoff in the Naval Postgraduate School and Nathan Wilmers of the MIT Sloan School of Management, who used mobile location data to see Americans' movements align with where they live. Social isolation had become more prominent, of course. Churches used to provide a reason for Americans of all income together. But with the decline of organized religion, civil organizations, and post-COVID, less occasion than ever to be near people who are more or less like ourselves, enter the mid-tier chain restaurants. I'll let you read the rest of it, but I just got tickled to death about this. Uh, people knock Olive Garden, Chili's, and Applebee's, but man, they're popular. People like, look, sometimes we'll go to Applebee's, just get the you know appetizers. Or I don't care who you are. If you don't think an Olive Garden breadstick is good, you just there's something wrong with you. Yes, I know it's the exact same breadstick, just shave, you know, covered with extra cheese and sprayed with oil. But still, it's good food. Don't be a food elitist. There's nothing wrong with a chain restaurant once in a while. And I'm somebody that seeks out and purposely spends my money. Look, most Sundays, if I'm home, I go to the farmer's market and support the local vendors. If I can go to a mom and pop restaurant, I do. If I can go to a local place, I do. But don't knock the chain restaurants. They're pretty good. It's good food. It's good value for the money. You're always probably going to take some takeout home with you for the next day. Don't be a food snob. Olive Garden, Chili's, and Applebee's. God bless you. More America, right? And that'll do it for Herd Tell today. However you're listening, make sure you're subscribed and liking. And if those platforms give you a chance to leave a comment and a rating, please do so. That's so, so important to us and only costs you a few moments of your time. Let's the platform know we're worth promoting. Let's the platform know uh, that our program is worth folks checking out. More importantly, if you're subscribing on those and following or whatever that platform calls it, also helps us track how you're getting the program so we can keep tailoring it to make sure you get it how you need to. We've been pretty Twitter dominant on our social media. That has to change because Twitter's getting really unstable. Uh, so make sure you're signed up to the, the Substack, hurtel.substack.com. Also, the YouTube page is doing really well all of a sudden. Y'all finding it there, both audio and video portions of the program on there. Um, which also means if you're listening on YouTube music, you can get the program on there. So however you're listening, we sure appreciate you. So wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again real soon for the next Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.
Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. <laughs>